Hello, I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, and on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to Dialogue Gospel Study for Sunday, October 8th, 2023, with Cynthia W. Cannell. Dialogue Chair Chris Kimball is co-hosting and running tech for us today. Whether you're a longtime listener or have just found Dialogue Gospel Study, we invite you to check out all that Dialogue offers at our website, dialoguejournal.com. There you can find previous gospel study lessons, other offerings like Dialogue Out Loud and Dialogue Book Report, as well as links to all the great shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. We're especially excited about a couple of new podcast series, including Signature Books and Angels and Sears Latter-day Saint Folklore Podcast with Christine and Christopher Blythe. Available at DialogueJournal.com is also the latest issue of the journal. Uh, Along with the entire Dialogue archive, that's more than five decades of scholarship, poetry, essays, sermons, fiction, and art. In the very first issue of Dialogue, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into Dialogue. Faith and curiosity and awe continue to guide the work we do. Please support that work and help us secure the future of the oldest independent Mormon studies journal at the donate link at dialoguejournal.com. If you're live on Zoom today, you're invited to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. We'll follow along there as well as on Facebook where we are also running a live stream. Our teacher today is Cynthia W. Cannell. Uh, she's a nonfiction author, poet, and essayist. From her father, she's a descendant of the Saponi Indians of Virginia and North Carolina were first contact people. And from her mother, she descends from the Algonquin First Nations of Canada. Cynthia has a BA in English from Brigham Young University with a special emphasis in writing personal history. Her writing has appeared in numerous print and online publications, including the Ensign Magazine, By Common Consent, and Exponent 2. She was an Exponent 2 BIPOC scholarship winner for 2022 and is a Latter-day Saint Publishing, Media, and Arts 2023 Spark Award winner in the category of memoir. Cynthia served a full-time mission in the Arizona, Holbrook, and Phoenix mission among the Navajo, Hopi, and Spanish-speaking communities. Upon her return, she was called to be the Lamanite Cultural Specialist for Historic Temple Square in Salt Lake City. That's where she met her future husband, Richard Cannell. 35 years later, they are the parents of three children and recently became first-time grandparents. Together, they served as presidents of the BYU Former Student Officer Society and later as organizers and first co-chairs of the BYU Native American Alumni Association. Cynthia has also served on committees and panels for both the Mormon History Association and for Latter-day Saint Publishing, Media, and Arts. She and Richard, who is joining us to offer the opening prayer, currently live in Springville, Utah, where she serves as a stake education specialist for her ward. Cynthia enjoys family history research, sewing and baking heart-healthy treats for her family. Also joining us to offer the closing prayer is Cynthia's son, Nathan Cannell. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed today are those of the individual teacher. They do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any other organization. The music today is I Need Thee Every Hour, performed by Blair Chong on cello and Ling Lee on piano. Both were graduate students at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Blair has received her master's degree, and Ling is in the final stages of completing her Doctor of Musical Arts. Ling is Nathan's spouse and Cynthia's daughter-in-law. Go ahead, Richard. Over and bow our heads, close your eyes. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this day. We thank thee for those with such beautiful musical abilities. And we thank thee for those who have knowledge and wisdom and are willing to share it. We ask thee for all the blessings we stand in need of this day. Bless our loved ones and our families. Watch over us and help us that Thy spirit will be with us, and it'll teach us those things we need to hear especially. We ask thee for these sins and blessings on Cynthia as she teaches. In the name of Jesus the Christ, amen.
Is it my turn now? Okay. Um, Richard wasn't trying to tell you all how to pray. He probably had our two-year-old grandson sitting in his lap. So we're trying to help him become more reverent. <laughs> that isn't easy. Um, I was asked to teach today on Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And this may be different than the uh, things laid out in the Come Follow Me manual, but they're put together because they logically fit together. In how the King James Version of the Bible was put together, all of the epistles were collected based on their length. So Philemon is the shortest and was put at the end, but is logically uh, connected to what goes on at the end, <clears throat> but is collected uh, connected to Colossians. So hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a much greater understanding, not only of the historical background that I think we lose when we do the Come Follow Me program. Um, we'll understand a little bit more about Paul and we'll find that it's relevant to us today. So first, my background is in writing and in personal history. And so to me, it's impossible to write about a person's life and experience, just as Paul is doing, without some understanding of what's going on around them. So we're going to start right now with the hard stuff, which is understanding that historical component. And we're going to talk about some really unsavory characters. Caligula. We just don't talk about Caligula in Sunday school. But it's important. Caligula was crowned emperor of Rome only 23 years before Paul's period of imprisonment. When he wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, Caligula was well known for being emotionally unstable. He tried to make himself a living deity. Therefore, he was a mortal man who demanded that people worship him. Caligula had a scandalous relationship with his married sister. In many ways, he was capable of destroying the order that was Rome. And three years and ten months into his reign, he was assassinated by members of the Praetorian Guard. Now, when you hear stories like this, think, how does this apply to me today? Uh, the next emperor was Claudius. Claudius became emperor 19 years before Paul's imprisonment. He was initially perceived as too weak to be emperor, but by force of circumstance, he was put on the throne. To make sure he survived, he literally bribed the Praetorian Guard, which had killed his nephew Caligula. He obviously he obviously started his reign in a vulnerable position. So he made sure to create a strong support system by creating a centralized bureaucracy managed by freed slaves. This is important as we consider what happens in the epistle of Philemon. These former slaves owed a deep debt of gratitude to Claudius, resulting in loyalty to his interest. That may sound good to our modern ears, but it was a significant issue to the members of the Roman Senate, since Claudius was giving power to people who were not Roman by birth. These freed slaves were given a level of membership in the Republic that equaled those who had prided themselves on their nationality as Romans. Many Romans were strongly opposed to sharing benefits that they believed they were born to receive. Compared to his nephew's behavior, Claudius's family situation was calm, but it was still nothing short of a tragic soap opera. Claudius's first wife was known to be unfaithful, and on the advice of Pallas, one of the freed men, he, he has her killed. Unknown to him was, excuse me, unknown to him, I missed the line there. Claudius then married his much younger niece, Agrippina, the younger, who, unknown to him, was having an affair with the freedman palace. Together, 
they schemed to have her son from a previous marriage made the heir to the throne. When this was done, they poisoned Claudius. All of these stories may have played a role in Paul, Paul counseling the church in Colossae on how to properly manage their households. A wife murdering her husband wasn't exactly a godly example of family life. Also, concerns about the behavior of Pallas may have been on the mind of Solomon when he received Paul's letter entreating him to free his former slave and embrace him as a brother. In spite of all the problems among Claudius's family, upon his death, he is also elevated to the status of a god. In these epistles, Paul never makes reference to these historical facts of deification. However, he will take great pains to explain why Jesus Christ is the only true and authorized human to obtain recognition as a god. Nero. In 54 AD, after the convenient death of his stepfather, Nero, who is only 17 years old, comes to the throne, and is it is obvious that his mother, Agrippina, desires to be his regent so that she can manage the state affairs. Paul's imprisonment between 60 and 62 AD surrounds the years when Nero became fed up with his mother's interference and had her assassinated. Again, as we prepare to look at Paul's writing, it is important to see them within the context of his time. While some modern scholars question whether Nero is as bad an emperor as he is painted to be, it is impossible to question that his choices to marry his stepsister, murder her brother, take other men's wives to be his concubines, and murder his own mother, disqualify him for nice guy status. It would have been an act of treason for Paul or any of the early faithful of the church to speak out about what was happening at the national level. However, he does give us one hint about how he feels his nation is doing. Instead of focusing on political issues, Paul teaches the people to understand that through their personal lives, they can turn away from the sins that surround them and be a significant influence for good. I don't know about you, but I think that counseling is very relevant today. And I think we see that, especially in general conference. We don't specifically address what we might consider political, social issues, but we teach individuals to live correctly. And we'll talk a little bit about that more later. Once we understand the history that surrounds Paul, what do Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon teach us about Paul himself? As a writer, we look at a character and, and considering Paul as a character. And they will always tell us what's going on inside, even though we don't necessarily know um, through dialogue or descriptor what he's actually feeling. But we can learn an awful lot about Paul and how he feels about his mission through looking at how his letters are put together. Paul was ever the legal mind. In our study, we will notice his use of multiple lists. As modern readers, we may fail to notice the fine details contained in the words that Paul uses. But with a more thorough exploration of his word choices, we see that he controls language with precision. In each of these letters, we can observe how Paul approaches his teaching style among the saints. Notice that when he wants to give a challenging teaching, he first helps his audience to feel positive about themselves. He highlights their good qualities and how they exemplify the Savior's teaching before he asks them to face a problem. The saints are much more likely to follow him when they know that he sees them as a good, as good and faithful people. But Paul is also much more than a legal scholar. 
In the King James Version of the Bible, most often used by Latter-day Saints, we can miss Paul's deep dive into scriptural poetry. He includes poems in his letters to the Philippians and Colossians. This tells us he also has significant literary skill combined with deep doctrinal understanding. Anyone who has ever attempted to write artistic texts combining the words of multiple Old Testament prophets will tell you this is no simple task. These poems also indicate that Paul most likely had many of these Old Testament texts memorized as he placed his as the place of his imprisonment is probably not an appropriate location to house a set of Torah scrolls, nor the tools needed to properly study them. As we begin to work our way through Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, I hope that we come to know more about Paul. I also hope that we seriously consider how his words reflect the social instability of his day and maybe just maybe notice that some of the different things from what some of the things happening around these early saints are not very different from what we might see in our day thus making Paul's advice relevant to our present spiritual needs Paul may not Paul not only spoke to his day but very much speaks to ours right we're going to start with philippians think about this is historical but how does this apply to me today wherever i am the people of philippi are in a roman colony based on a military conquest of the greek because of it a majority of the citizens have connections to the roman military and have developed a significant sense of nationalism. That means that they like the idea that they have been given the benefits of Roman citizenship, and they're not really too interested in seeing other people receive those same benefits. Often, those who were in the slave class were actually uh, political or military prisoners. So the idea of giving Roman citizenship to the very people that you fought against and maybe your friends died against is not something that's too appealing to the Philippians. But Paul's message is one of love. And it's a challenge to move beyond those closed ideas of who deserves the blessings and who doesn't. So... The first section of chapter one, we learn about Timotheus, um, who belongs to the Christian community of Philippi. Throughout the chapters, Paul will mention numerous individuals who have been visiting with him during his imprisonment. I suspect that they serve not only for his well-being, but as missionary companions, fulfilling the instruction of Matthew 18.20 where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So just as we as Latter-day Saints have companions in modern day for both protection and for the influence of the Holy Ghost, Paul appears to have done the same thing and in, in some cases uses the term companion. In this section, Paul expresses thanks to those who have been faithful among the Philippians. We're going to move to verse 8, and he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And Paul in this verse is telling us with humility how much he cares for the Philippian people. Um, in verses 9 through 11, he talks about how to be good saints. He says that your love may abound, that you may approve things that are excellent. Be sincere, without offense. 
being filled with the fruits of righteousness. So he's saying, don't worry about all these other issues that maybe are important to the people around you. This is what a Christian does. They act in love. He points out that when we are doing well, and in verse 12, assures us that his imprisonment will bring about good in preaching the gospel and will be the fulfillment of prophetic promises given to him. So he's in jail, and it's very easy for us to think, well, God is with him if he's in jail, but he's saying quite the opposite, that God is indeed with him and that his imprisonment is actually intentional and that they as faithful are not to be distressed by this. In verses 15, he says, Some indeed preached Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So what he is saying is that there are those who will claim to be teaching the principles of Jesus Christ, but they're doing it in such a negative manner that it's not going to bless the work, that we should always be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as positive, that as we reach out to others in our missionary efforts, we should avoid making people feel uncomfortable, pointing out negatives. And you'll see this in the, in the general authorities. They will over and over and over again choose to highlight the positive over our faults. He says, um, but others of love, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in the truth, Christ is preached. So even in spite of the imperfections of how we may teach the gospel, it still is the truth. And that truth will change those who are prepared. Very much like we, how the church approached the Book of Mormon musical. It didn't necessarily portray Latter-day Saints in the most loving way um, or respectful way. But nonetheless, there were people who were touched by the Book of Mormon. And anytime we're talking about the message of Jesus Christ, we don't know how anyone has been prepared ahead of time. And hearing that message, even in the most difficult of circumstances, can change people's lives. So this is what Paul is saying, that he himself is in prison. But don't let that distract you from the message of God. In 18 through 26, he says, all of this will work out to our good. And in 20 through 23, he says, all is well with faith, even to death, and foreshadows the persecutions. So we need to look at that a little more specifically. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet when I shall choose, I won't not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul isn't talking about an extremist viewpoint where he, where we say some of the, the layer Christians will do this. You know, it is glory to die in the name of Christ. That isn't really what he's talking about. And I'm going to share a personal story. Uh, when I was 48 years old, I had a heart problem and it turned out that it was going to be fatal. I had to have um, open heart surgery, but I, I, like most people, had to go on a waiting list. And the question was, will I live or will I die uh, waiting for the surgery? And you have to come to a moment where you find peace with your circumstance. 
And for me, my ward was fasting for me. My future son-in-law's ward was fasting for me. And on that day, I received a witness that it does not matter if we live or die. What matters is our are our covenants in place? Are the commitments that we have made to Jesus Christ intact? And this is what Paul's talking about. He says, whether I live or whether I die, just as I had felt, it's all right. Because I have remained faithful to what I believe is true. And Later on, as we go through this, we're going to find out that that is the definition of the rest of Christ. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So Paul isn't saying, be a zealot and die for the cause. He's saying, live each day. And whatever occurs, know that what comes next will be about Christ. A faith that is rooted and will not leave us shaken no matter what occurs. And I think this is really, really important because he is in prison what will be four years before Nero puts him to death, puts Peter to death, and blames the Christians for two-thirds of Rome burning, which will begin a long period of horrific persecution of the Christians. I don't know if Paul knows this, but he begins warning the people that persecution will come, but it does not matter if you are rooted in Christ. For nevertheless, abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you. So whatever Paul's circumstance in 24 and 25, he will remain committed to the saints in Philippi. And he, he goes on in 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in 29, he concludes, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. I don't think any of us may want to suffer. But I think whenever we take on a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in order for us to become like Christ, we must also suffer. It doesn't mean we have to suffer the same way. But it means that we grow intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually through turning to faith, through turning to eternal principles, and that this is the very thing that Jesus Christ did in his darkest moments before, um, during his period of the atonement, when he bled from every pore, and certainly before he was nailed to the cross, when he felt he himself felt abandoned. We have to also go through these periods and keep them in perspective that this is as as we often hear in the scriptures for our good. Okay, Philippians 2. For, for me, Philippians was much more impactful, so I may spend a little more time there. Chapter 2, Paul is telling the people, be one. He literally says, having the same love being of one accord. So all around that people are maybe complaining about national issues and issues of exclusion, but he's saying, no, no, amongst you, be one. Verses 6 through 11 is a poem, and we don't see that in our text, but nonetheless, it's there. And I want to put a little bit of extra effort on 10 and 11. And it says, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Then 11. 
and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to point this out. We can pass this this particular verse set of verses over, or we can notice that this one set of verses is quoted in every single book of Scripture. It's in the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and for Latter-day Saints, it's in the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, I believe. There's a reason. This is the purpose of our lives. We are here to learn, to prepare ourselves, to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, to admit our imperfections, and to be able to acknowledge that he is the only living Savior. Every human being has to be prepared for this moment. Um, in 12, verse 12, he's asking us to humbly seek salvation. And in 14, we get back to this theory, don't fight amongst yourselves. And Paul makes specific references in 15 to people being part of a wicked nation but that they must be alike. Whatever goes on around us, we have a choice about how we behave. And as true believers in Jesus Christ, we don't pick our neighbors apart. We don't fight amongst ourselves. We don't make the people in our congregations feel bad. We build. We lift. We focus not on our imperfections, but on what unites us. In chapter 3, and again, there's so much in Philippians. In chapter 3, 1 through 7 talks about circumcision. And this is really important because there were gatekeepers who had put themselves in positions where they said, you can't be a Christian unless you adhere to all of the original traditional Jewish customs. And then there were others who were part of the Roman tradition who said, you know, it's kind of a, just add Christ to the list of, of worthies and honor the ball. And Paul is saying, no, we're in a completely different situation. What was in the past was great. And he doesn't say it's evil. He hurt. He specifically says that, um, it's a type and a shadow. Those traditions, he'll say this later on. A type and a shadow. So in other words, it indicates what will happen in the future. But it does not mean it is the way to salvation. So all of these gatekeepers who have put themselves in positions of authority, he's saying, no, they're not there. And we as, as followers of Christ need to look, are we trying to be gatekeepers? Or are we trying to testify of Christ? Um, my personal opinion I, I love this. I have Jewish family, and so I tend to um, learn more about the culture, and I respect the traditions, and I find many of them incredibly uplifting. And this last week, um, or about uh, 10 days ago, I guess, um, was Yom Kippur. And I was watching the Yom Kippur service out of the Central Synagogue in Manhattan, New York. And one of the things that they do during that service is the vidyu prayer, which is a prayer where the community acknowledges its unified sins. And this is part of the days of awe. And in verse 8 in chapter uh, 3, Paul is telling us, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So he's talked about these gatekeepers and their zealous behaviors. And he's saying, here I am, I am an apostle of God, and I think very little of myself. In other words, he's not caught up in his own identity in this calling. And he points out that this zealous behavior is inappropriate. And during this uh, video prayer that I was listening to in the synagogue, one of the things they say is, 
we are zealous over false causes. That is a communal sin that they acknowledge. And I think many of us as Christians and as Latter-day Saints, we get our favorite way of living the gospel and we want everyone to do it. Whether it's only consuming 1,500 calories a day or whether it's um, reading 45 minutes every night in the scriptures, we may have our favorite way of living the gospel and feel that it's our right to impose that on someone else. Or we may have views outside of the gospel and say, mm, I think I should violently oppose this particular viewpoint and I should fill my home with weapons and I shall defend myself no matter the cause. It does not matter what he is saying is that as a people, we are prone to zealousness that is unrighteous. Nine, in verses 9 through 10, we learn that Paul teaches us that Christ saves. And um, I want to take a, a little extra minute on 12 through 15. For not as though I had already attained either were, were already perfect, but I follow after it, that I may apprehend for that which I for which also I am apprehended of Christ, which of course doesn't make much sense, but within the context it will. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye otherwise minded, God shall reveal them unto you. He mentions perfect. And it's important for us to understand he is not talking about kind of perfect we think about in modern terms. He's not thinking about perfect weight, perfect household, perfect job. He's not talking about that. The Greek definition of perfect, according to um, scholar um, let's see, Michael Mead is based on the Greek idea that perfection is that moment of death, just before you die. You've acquired all the knowledge you possibly can. And that was that moment I was describing to you. You know, in that moment, you judge yourself. Did I accomplish everything that was really important? And that's that moment of perfection. And in this text, you realize that Paul is talking not only about life, but death. Um, there's a wonderful article that some may want to look at, written by Frank L. Judd, called Be Therefore Perfect, The Elusive, Elusive Quest for Perfection, published by BYU Religious Studies. Perfection can be an issue of zealous behavior, but true perfection is a life lived with knowledge. And we're going to talk a little bit more about knowledge as quickly as we can. Um, Paul wants us in the remainder of this section to let go of earthly things and to focus on eternal principles. In chapter 4, we'll make a couple of real quick references. I love verse 3. Um, there are a couple of sisters who are not getting along, and at the end he says, they are fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. This goes back to the days of awe. So I'm thinking Paul wrote this during the fall. Um, the idea that women are not excluded from God's good list. They make it. They have a place in heaven. They have a role. They have a righteousness that sometimes is forgotten later on in the scriptures. But the book of life is this thing that all desire among the Jewish culture. It's to be acknowledged by God and be given another year to strive and perfect oneself. Okay, now we're going to quickly skip over and we're going to hit Colossians. There is no way that we can cover Colossians. If we had six hours, we would not be able to do a good job on Colossians. So I assure you right now, we're going to do a poor job on Colossians. But these are the things you need to know. Colossus or Colossae 
was a city that gained its wealth from dying crippled wool. It could only be worn, which could only be worn by elevated members of society. So they benefited from maintaining the social order. Paul did not establish the church in Colossae. They never met him. And so he's writing to a group of people he doesn't know that he's heard about through these people who come to visit him, who did help to establish the church in Colossae. Um, evangelical edu religious educator Michael Mazzalongo said that sometimes people ask him, okay, I don't have much time, but I want to learn more about Jesus Christ. If there's one book in the New Testament I, I need to read to do that, what is it? And he always says the book of Colossians. So it's grounded in Paul testifying of his role of an, as an apostle. It's testifying of the role of Jesus Christ as the literal son of God and as a resurrected being. Unlike Caligula, unlike Claudius, and we haven't found what will happen to Nero yet because he's just a kid. He's, he's 20 years old. So Paul emphasizes the, the importance of understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. And we see that first occurring in verse 9. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desiring that you might be filled with the knowledge and his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. These are words we just clumped together, but they are different. And Paul uses them with intention that they are different. Um, Bruce R. McConkie has done an excellent job of describing the difference. He said, knowledge is, is things of the earth, but it's also things that are spiritual. But it's information. Wisdom is information about God combined with the Holy Ghost. And I've heard a third definition that understanding can be uh, wisdom to understand how God functions. So we might have a spiritual understanding, but we haven't grown enough to be able to say, in this circumstance, yeah, I can see God will do X or Y. And that's what understanding is. So Paul is talking about three very distinct things. In verses 10, he's talking about Christ's authority. Verses 15 through 20, again, we have a poem. And this poem uses Genesis, Psalms 2, 8, 68, Exodus 40, and Proverbs 8. It's, it's like four verses. And he stuck all this incredible doctrine in it. So these are incredibly important and dense and rich um, things for us to study. The next thing that we need to look at is this idea of 23. If we continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, wherefore I, Paul, am made a minister. Paul is describing a specific thing. He's not just talking off the top of his head. He's talking about the rest in, of Christ. Rest, R-E-S-T. And we might think, oh, that means I, I kick back and, and I'm not worrying about the things of this sort of life anymore. I'm in heaven. It's good here. It's not, you know, I can, I can enjoy myself. That is not what he's talking about. Um, Joseph F. Smith, who was the prophet of our church, who received the redemption of the dead visions. He said that the rest of Christ is exactly this. It's that firm knowledge that we have committed ourselves to being followers of Jesus Christ. And that regardless of the turmoil surrounding us, we will remain faithful and true. Now, last year in General Conference, President Nelson gave us an address that was specifically on the rest in Christ. And it was this topic. He actually used the term turmoil in describing the world we are presently living in. 
and how we need to get to that place that Paul is talking about where we will not yield. We will always remain firm in our knowledge that Jesus Christ is with us, that he has redeemed us, that he has changed us, and that he knows what he's doing. So this is a concept that that is very important for our day. And I, I think of the people who must be in Israel and Palestine right now and Gaza. What are they feeling? Their faith in God may not include the vision that we have, but it includes faith, sure faith. And it's only when we get to a unified place in that faith that we let go of what we will talk about next, which is wrath. It is not our place to be vengeful. God claims the right for wrath. And Paul will talk about this um, in uh, a little further on. We'll get we'll get there in, in just a second. Let's see. Yeah, in chapter three, Paul will talk about wrath, and I think that's one of those points where he's making lists. Throughout chapter three, we hear a list after list after list: how to be good, how to be bad. And if we don't make the time to go through and actually re-identify these words, we miss the precision with which he is telling us how to behave. And one of these key words is wrath. You and I have no right to punish others for our anger towards them. We may honorably and honestly feel it, but our job is to forgive, not to repay. Letting go of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Wars in the world we live in are based on wrath, but we are promised over and over again throughout the scriptures that the Lord himself owns the right to wrath. Okay, so um, we going back really quickly to chapter 2. Paul is telling us the kosher laws do not save. Don't be a gatekeeper on what people eat, what people, um, how often they wash. Gentiles are not living the same lives. Nonetheless, they can be faithful followers of Christ. We have to be unified. Okay. All right. We're going to deal really quickly in chapter three with what for many people is a stumbling block. That is verse 18, 19, and 20. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. It is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Keep in mind what he is historically seeing in the households of the leaders of his nation. They're murdering each other. He's saying, no. A Christian family is going to do this. They're going to work with each other. They're going to compromise. They're going to love and support one another. Wives aren't going to kill husbands. Husbands aren't going to punish wives. And we in our day might think, this this is impressive. But I think what Paul was trying to do was something we learn about from Confucianism. One of the first books of Confucianism is called The Great Learning, and it teaches a student how to be a good scholar. And it teaches us that when we fix ourselves individually, and then we fix our families, eventually it works up to fix the nation. So Paul isn't speaking out about the behavior of the people at the top. He's saying, if you put your own life and your own family in order, eventually it will change everything. And he talks about servants in, in the same capacity. We don't like slavery. Why is it Paul saying slavery should be gone? He would have his head chopped off if he said that. And that's not going to move the work of the gospel forward. But he, in, in verse or in, in chapter four, tells us how the masters must treat those who serve them and then points out that he himself is in bondage. And if he is in bondage and he, he can handle it and he can understand and he can see the good of God, 
then he asked for those who are servants to do the same. And I think it's really important for us to consider Mosiah 24, 15 through 16, when the people were oppressed, instead of taking up arms, they called on the Savior to relieve them of their imprisonment, and he saved them. So there are more than one, there's more than one way to deal with slavery. It's, it's a difficult topic. And certainly in the amount of time we have, we can't address it well. Philemon, yeah, we're here. We're getting here. Paul speaks of his fellow to of his companions. He's telling them how everybody's doing, what's happened. And then he says, Um, I have this this one companion, his name is um Onesius. Yeah, listen. Onesimus. By the way, he's a slave. Um, he's a runaway slave, and we know that if he goes home, he's going to get his head cut off. Um, but since we know that his owner is Philemon, um, Paul directly addresses this letter to Philemon, and he says, um, I know that you're a good person. Again, that positive, positive reinforcement comes first. And then he says, by the way, can you do a favor for me? Would you free Philemon or would you free Onesimus? And um, by the way, after you free him, will you embrace him as a brother in the faith because he's converted? Can you imagine after what happened with Pallas and all the treachery and all of the feelings that that uh, the people of Colossus might have had about? maintaining the social order that was broken by uh, Claudius. How would Philemon, who's wealthy enough to own a slave, feel about embracing him as a brother? Wow, this is an incredibly complex thing. And if we can just blow this by and not realize it, this is significant that he is saying this person is not up to what you expect, but God and I expect you to reach out and embrace this person and welcome them into the fold. Not just you, but everybody. And for me, as I read this, I couldn't help think, how often do we have people return to the gospel who have had lives that are complicated, who have issues that we might find distasteful, or that we as gatekeepers might feel disqualify them for reunion with the saints? No. This letter to Philemon just says no. If this person is coming back among you and they're doing their best, you embrace them and you help everybody else in your community embrace them. And I think in the world that we live in, that's a challenge for all of us. That is the challenge of the scriptures. And that's in this tiny little letter. That's where all of us are. We have our differences. We have our fears. But we've got to learn to embrace one another. We did it. We're through it all. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has time for questions. We have just like three minutes left. But there is so much here. So I apologize for if I skipped over your favorite part. But anyway. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Um, I think we do have a couple of comments I wanted to bring in. Um, this from Alice Faulkner-Birch. Uh, she says, perhaps also dying for Christ. Um, kind of going back a little bit. Um, and as much as our natural selves, our selfish selves, um, die for our greater selves to arise and live a life committed to Christ and his teachings, walking fully with him. Um, and I've just been thinking this whole time kind of um, uh, about some of these scriptures that you started with, this idea of um, the contrast between um, preach, uh, kind of preach the Christ of contention or the Christ of love and um and thinking about, um, you know, in this context of whether it's the context of nationalism or the context of religious zealotry, um, you know, the message that Paul has, you know, what it means to be one, um, how do we ground and settle ourselves and stop being zealous over 
false causes, whether they be related to nationalism or to um, religion, and how do we really um, be with be one with Christ and and preach His gospel with with love? I agree absolutely with what Alice said. There was a whole segment in which Paul talks about how baptism replaces these kosher laws. Um, time did not permit me to hit everything, um, but you're exactly right. That's why this is relevant to our time. Yeah. Cynthia, I'm, if I get a chance here, I'm so impressed with the importance of context. I, I like I mean, I appreciate the way you started. It's uh, it's uh, it's revealing to think that when we're talking about slavery, it's about how to behave when slavery is a given, uh, not about slavery being a good thing. When we're talking about husbands and wives and how you treat each other, it's in the context where killing each other is something you know, in the news. And so... <laughs> It may not be about the next argument, but about you know, don't kill each other. <laughs> that I, that that context is so valuable. And you know, when Paul says, "I'm I'm I'm making sense of being imprisoned," uh, and and all things are for the you know for the for the gospel of Christ, it's not saying now you turn around and you can imprison people. That that's an okay thing. It's it's. All of that context is so important, and and what he's doing here is is subtle in that way. And I, I I I so appreciate the way you bring that out. It's it's subtle in that it's very contextual. It's very much related to um, this is how I'm coping. This is not to say jailers are good people, <laughs> but it is to say I'm seeing. I, you know, a silver lining. I'm seeing something good out of it, coming out of this. I think it's also important to note that Paul acknowledges that the Praetorian Guard, the people who killed Caligula and who Claudius, the emperor, was afraid of, they're the ones guarding him. You know, he is a, he's a threat to the state, but he knows that these people are just as dangerous as they can be. So... We, we have to apply these things to ourselves, but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it's all done in a vacuum and only applies to us. And, it, you know, we don't agree with that because of our modern values. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Um, we'll have uh, Nathan close us with prayer and invite you to join us in two weeks on October 22nd uh, with Erica Munson. Okay. Our dear Father in heaven, we're so thankful for this day and that we could come together to learn more of um, the teachings that God's given us and um, particularly, we pray that thou wouldst help us to carry this discussion in our hearts as we go throughout our week, that we'll be able to see that application not only in the ancient time, but in our day as well, that we'll be able to look at what we do and be reminded of Christ's love and God's intention and how we can up uplift those who are with and around us. And we pray for all of those who have spoken and who have participated that they'll be able to be inspired and know how what they've heard today can um, draw them closer to the year. Say these things in the name of my son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, anything else you want to do while we're here? So I know that you've got your church meetings. And I know you've got yours. And I've got mine, so. Okay. Uh, maybe we'll call it good for today. All right. Well, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. You too, Cynthia. 
Greetings, my name is Rebecca Deschweinitz and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit DialogueJournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcast Network.